Hello and welcome to Neither the Time Nor the Space, a podcast about Doctor Who. My name is David and as always I am joined by the gastropedal Matt. Hello there. Hello. Uh, we watched The Twim Dilemma. Yep. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, uh, possibly you did as well. If you did, I mean, I can only apologise. <laughs> Um, so how 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 does it feel now that you've watched what is generally regarded as the worst Doctor Who story ever televised? I I don't think this is the worst Doctor Who we've watched. Wow. Okay. Straight I I, I found this entirely watchable, <laughs> and, and I don't know if there was some sort of subconscious bloody-minded stubbornness where I was like, yeah, it's not that bad, but actually. It's not terrible. It's well, not perfect, but... It I, certainly I, isn't. But... I enjoyed this. If you gave me the choice of watching this or that Tomb of the Cybermen, I'd watch this every day. <laughs> you are just trolling now. No, honestly... You are, you are trolling with that. We, we've watched <laughs> far worse than this. Like, if you had to watch this or Canine and Company, I'd watch this. Hang on, hang on. Okay, just for comparison. So so a few years ago, Doctor Who magazine ran a, a big poll of its readers called The Mighty 200, mm-hmm. um, which was, at that point, 200 televised stories uh, had, had been broadcast. So um, I'm just going to bring up the, the full results because the... Yeah, the, the the twin dilemma came in last place, mm-hmm. as it does repeatedly on on any sort of like best of worst of polls. It it's generally regarded as the absolute worst. Um, for comparison, the Tomb of the Cybermen is ranked number twenty three. No, no, out of two hundred. Do, do you know what? If if a friend asked me. Can you show me some classic Doctor Who that pretty much sums up classic Doctor Who? I'd mm-hmm. show them this. <laughs> oh my god! It, it's got all the tropes of classic Doctor Who. This was, like I say, this was entirely watchable. Like fucking fandom needs to get off its high horse. <laughs> like it's not perfect, but I wouldn't say we've watched a perfect episode yet, except Blink, and it, it, it's nowhere near as bad as like some of the shite we've watched. The Doctor tries to strangle his companion in the first ten minutes. Yeah, but, like, they explain <gasps> that. They explain why. Like, so badly. That, oh, but it's okay. an important part of the plot. Right, so I, yeah, let, okay. let's just boil this down, because last night I asked you to think of three things you didn't mm-hmm. like. Yep. Okay. Now, I've written down my three things. Okay. So, I don't know. Do you want to go first and we'll go okay, three, I'll, two, I'll, one each? Yeah, all right then. So, uh, so the, I'll start with um, what we've just discussed, Doctor trying to kill Perry, uh, which, to be clear, was one of, one of the only things I knew about this story going into it. All I really knew was that moment uh, of the Doctor strangling Perry because that's, you know, a very infamous moment in the history of Doctor Who. I knew that it was Colin Baker's first story, so I knew sort of the context for that. Um, and I'm trying to think if I knew anything else about it. I don't know that I did, to be honest. Oh, other than its reputation as being one of the worst. Um, 
so anyway, yeah. So that's my the 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 the, the first thing on my list was the Doctor trying to See, kill Perry. I, it's the I, most I would, obvious. But... I would link that to mine, and it's not specifically that. I just thought the the I'm going to apologise because it sounds like I'm recording in a wind tunnel. It's really outside. <laughs> um, I've just put that this version of the Doctor's just a bit much for me. Yes, he definitely is. So, can, I mean, do you want me to? I can give you a little bit of production history context for this because there were some decisions made, uh, which are very reflected in this this story. So, we're just com- coming off the back of um, the Fifth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, this is this is the very first story coming directly after the Caves of Androzani, generally considered the best story. So we've gone right from the the top to the bottom. If you were to take the maybe this is just like you know the Star Wars prequels. Just because it's not the Star Wars people wanted, they're they're not that bad, and this isn't that bad. We'll 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 we'll, we'll get there. Um, But anyway, so the Fifth Doctor, if you recall, quite a quite a touchy feely, sensitive kind of a Doctor. Quite, you know, Jenny and, and all of that. So uh, the producer, jo- jo- John Nathan Turner, wanted to present a contrast. So what they wanted to do was have a doctor that at least initially starts out kind of emphasising all of the worst aspects of the doctor's character. Like they're not they've not completely changed him. He's still the doctor. The doctor has always had aspects of being very arrogant, very vain occasionally cowardly you know mm. even though his it one of you know his creed is to try not to be cowardly he does have his moments where he definitely is um and so they they kind of wanted to ramp up all of those less uh less what's the word i'm looking for some of those more negative aspects of his character and slowly kind of peel away away the layers and over the course of Colin Baker's tenure like reveal the kind-hearted doctor within basically mm-hmm. that was the plan and Colin Baker was on record as saying he wanted to beat Tom Baker's record Tom Baker was in the role for 7 years Colin Baker wanted to um beat that sadly he didn't have the opportunity he's the only mm-hmm. doctor so far in history to be actually well, I, I guess other than Hartnell to be to be fired, basically for the production right. staff to turn around and say, "Look, th- this isn't working. We, we're giving you the boot." And and, and w- was that just reset. simply because of his performance? He wasn't like not an not because of his anything. performance. It was it was internal BBC politics and stuff like that. One thing I will say is, uh, what is not on my list of worst things is Colin Baker himself, uh, who mm. I think when he's given. When he's given the right material, is fantastic and has time and time again proved he's mm. he, he's more than capable of playing the part well. Um, and you see flashes of it even in this story. Um, for all its fault, I don't think uh, Colin Baker is really one of them. But yeah, that that initial plan of starting out unlikable and slowly peeling away the layers—it's a very bold plan. But they, I feel like they started off so badly and so extremely. That it's kind of hard to recover from that. Um, so, yeah. So what, what have you got as your second? Worst? So my second worst thing, uh, I've just written slug people. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that, because through my notes, they're actually my number two. And I've just written, just in my notes, all the way through, those fucking costumes. It's not good, like, is it? Like, first of all, they're meant to be slug people, but they're not. Yeah, they're just regular people, but they, you just don't see them from the waist down. <laughs> yeah, they're like moths. Like furry moths. Yeah. And, and like, I mean... I, I know I've said I, I didn't mind this episode. Those costumes, man. Those they're not. Costumes. They're not great. And uh, I mean, Mestor's one. The the head slug, um, Mestor. His his costume makes it sound like he's basically got a mouthful of tissue paper the whole time. It's right. really can, hard can, to understand can we his just dialogue. Talk, there's one thing I couldn't work out about Mestor. Okay. Right. So in his face. Yeah. There, there's obviously two eye holes where the actor can see through. Yes. Now, I couldn't work out, were those Mestor's eyes as well? Or were they nostrils and his eyes were on the stalks? <laughs> I don't know. Cause I don't it, know. It looked a lot like he had eyes on stalks. But then he had other eyes. And these were supposed to be, like, his nostrils. Yeah. But I, I couldn't work out whether he just had eyes on stalks or just appendages. And all the way through, I, like... When you first see Mestor, he's not entirely revealed. You sort of mm. see him over Edgeworth, like when he's speaking to him, communicating. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of when we watched The Rescue with the first Doctor. Yeah, it's, I, I it's, mean... It's low production value, isn't it? I liked the sort of carnival nature of uh, the costume in, in that story this on the other hand just it really feels like you can you can almost see the duct tape holding it together it feels so ropey <laughs> and yeah. uh yeah uh, and the fact that it obviously impedes the act to the to the point that you can barely understand what he's saying half the time it's not a good uh not a good situation but it's pretty good death effects when mestor dies yeah I guess. You see his entire body explode out through his eye sockets. Yeah. If they are his eye sockets. <laughs> but uh, we're getting what, ahead what, of ourselves, yeah. What have you got as your least favourite? My absolute least favourite thing is Asmail being a Time Lord. And this is yeah. a very fanish thing. I can see why it would bother you less, potentially. But... Asmail makes no sense to me, given the wider context of what I understand to be Time Lord society. Hmm. Well, I, I did wonder whether he was an old character or not that we'd seen before. Nope. But he's just like... I think it's pure clock, plot convenience. They wanted Asmail to be someone that the Doctor had had past dealings with, so they had yeah. that kind of rapport and trust but he didn't but need to be a Time Lord. He didn't need to be a Time Lord. And it makes no sense to me because, basically, I think of Time Lords as, as coming to two broad camps. Mm -hmm. You've got your proper Time Lords, the ones that stick to the rules, who are the ones that the Doctor kind of escaped from, um, who, you know, strut about the Citadel in their fancy costumes, making rules and, and pronouncements and by and large following a strict policy of non-intervention mm. in the affairs and timelines of the universe and then you have the renegades 
who are like the doctor and the master, the Rani, uh, the Corsair, doc, uh, uh, Time Lords that rebel against that formal Time Lord society and use use that time travel technology either to uh, just jolly about on adventures or, you know, commit acts of evil in the case of uh, the Master or, you know, whatever it is. That's kind of that's kind of how I classify them in my head. You know, you're either a renegade Time Lord or you're a, a classic uh, stick-to-the-rules Time Lord. Asmail apparently has taken it upon himself to leave Gallifrey and become ruler of another planet. But yep. I, I, I guess benevolently because he's not painted as a villain at all. But this is a guy coming, this is an alien coming to this world and and declaring himself ruler of it. Yeah. <laughs> not a great well, look. Plus, it's... N- His character arc in this story is pretty poor as well. Yeah. Because... At the beginning, he's like friends with the twins' father, but that's never explained. Not really. But then he's in charge, but he also, you know, is under Mestor's control. Yeah, he's been deposed and is now just kind of doing whatever Mestor tells him. And see, I don't know. I just feel like why they couldn't have made Asmael just the same species as as the Jacondans, I don't understand. And, you know, because there's no reason why the Doctor couldn't be pals with, you know, the former ruler of Jaconda. Yeah. He's been about enough that, it, you know, I, I, I would totally have bought that as in having this sort of off-screen prior uh, relationship with him. But anyway, yeah. Um, so that just really stuck in my craw. See, I would say my worst thing about this episode. Yeah. Is Perry's accent? Oh yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean that fucking voice all the way through. <laughs> she's just like Doctor. It's not good. It's not good. Um, and I, I even had to check because it's an English actress. Yes. So you'd think the production team would know better than to cast a, a, a an English actress to play an American because, like. Not that long ago, you had uh, Janet Fielding playing Tegan, and that's an Australian playing an Australian character. <laughs> you know, so why they couldn't find any American uh, actresses to play uh, Perry, I have no idea. I mean, I don't particularly blame Nicola Bryan. You know, she I guess she could have practiced a little more, <laughs> but, but you know, ultimately. She's just doing a job, and if she gets cast, it's not her fault if she's been miscast. Um, I guess I've seen enough stuff with Perry in that it doesn't bother me as much now. Mm. I'm ki- I've kind of got used to her accent. But, yeah, coming in cold, it must have been a shock for you. <laughs> it's just, It's just so irritating. It's not good. And to be fair... She is generally just an irritating character in this story. She doesn't do much other than whinge. Mm. Uh, and, and to be fair, you know, her best friend did try and murder her not long ago. He, he, she, you can't blame her for being a bit put out. Though I am, I am absolutely baffled as to why she stays after that. 
you'd feel like it would just be like, okay, I'm off. Drop me to any planet. I don't even care. I just need to get away from you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, the good news is, um, just having a quick look on the Wikipedia, um, that in, I think it might be the same poll you were talking about. In the 1998 poll... This was voted the second worst. Oh, right. Yes. No, that was the previous one. Um, yeah. Which, so the one worse than this is the Children in Need special, yes. which features Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. So guess what we can watch at the end of his run? We are we are definitely going to do Dimensions in Time at some point. Yeah. Uh, probably as a bonus episode, because uh, it's a non-canonical thing. Right. Um, so it, it's not an actual, it's not a canonical story. It's... You will love it. I don't even want to spoil it for you, so don't read any more about Dimensions in Time because okay. I think you will have a whale of a time with it. Yeah. Well, as always, we both agree the worst thing about this adventure is just the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say, I'm not, I'm not even going to rise to that bait, but um, what I am going to say is I do have a, a, a an honourable mention here, which is my best worst thing. Go on. Which is Colin Baker's cliffhanger face. Well, I've uh, we'll we'll cross that when we get to it. <laughs> All right, okay. If you want to I address mean, it later, I, I, that's I would fine. say if I had to pick my worst best thing, it would be that it turns out you can control somebody's mind simply by using a Haribo jelly ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this story. But, um, yeah. When we when we get to the the uh, cliffhanger, we'll we'll definitely discuss that. Now, to be to be serious for a minute, this, yes, I just wanted to ask this adventure is directed by Peter Moffat. Mm-hmm. I just wondered whether that was any relation to Stephen Moffat. Not that I'm aware of. Doctor I th- Who family. I I'm not aware of that being a thing. But I will quickly double check on the yeah, old Wikipedia. Yeah, I couldn't find anything when I had a quick look online. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I don't think there's just any relation. And then the other thing I I'm just looking to see. Oh, he's 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 actually he's he's um directed some of my favourite stuff. From the uh, Peter Davison era, State of Decay, Visitation, Wardering Undead, uh, The Five Doctors. Hmm. So, obviously, you would think a safe pair of hands for this story, which means I am going to entirely blame uh, John Nathan Turner as the producer and uh, Anthony Stephen, the writer for this story. Mm. And I guess Eric Sayward, script editor. Those three are going to have to shoulder the blame for <laughs> everything we're about to discuss. And I think we should just get stuck into it because we've got a lot of, we've done a lot of preambling here, but I mean, it's hard. Is it? It's, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. With this story. I've probably written more notes for this. I know it was four episodes. Yeah. Than I usually do for a classic episode. I obviously and, it compelled you on some level then. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that sort of immediately made me fond of this episode, was obviously, it's from 1984, mm-hmm. and just sort of the way it's produced sort of took me back. I almost had like a childish regression. Yeah. Because all we definitely... television looked like this in the 80s. Yes, yeah, and I think I think you'll get feel that even more when we get to Sylvester McCoy. 
When you watch some of the production of his era, it looks like the sort of like a CBBC drama circa well, late eighties, early nineties. That's what this 90s. made me think of. It made me think of like look and read, like through the dragon's eye type mm. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I sort of had a fondness for the way it looked. Yeah. Okay, so shall we uh, shall we rattle through this this story as as best we can? So it opens with two boys with terrible haircuts. Yeah, proper bowl cuts. And and they are playing what looks like Cones of Dunshire from Parks and Rec. I was about to make that reference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's like backgammon but with cones. Yeah, and they don't seem to be taking any pleasure in it whatsoever. Oh, they don't take any pleasure in anything. They, I mean, they are miserable. Kids. Considering we did a top three worst things about this episode, and we didn't mention those two dickheads, I think it just goes to show how bad this story is. Yeah. Plus, if you check their Wikipedia, they have pretty much no other acting credits mm-hmm. other than this. That does not surprise me. Yeah, but they they talk to their father in unison. It's clear that they have some sort of link or power. Yeah. Uh, and well, basically, a, it seems like their power, as far as, far as we can tell, is just good at maths. Well, yeah, yeah, but also just simply because their mum's gone out, they absolutely berate her, <laughs> call yeah. her a fool, yeah, and they're just like, "How dare she!" Like, yeah, it's really you know, weird. Yeah, I, I, the thing that I don't get with the twins, right, is they're presented in, as being incredibly unlikable. Um. And and almost falling into the trope of classic trope of like creepy twins. Yes. Yeah. Yet they are at no stage the antagonist. They they at best are like a MacGuffin who like, you know, people need to access their minds in order to you know, carry out their machinations. And also they're kind of the victims, they're they're the princesses to be saved. But at no point are we given any reason to care whether they live or die. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's but, such a strange writing choice. Well, that, the thing is, as well, you're sort of forced to care. Every so often, it'll just go, oh, but the twins. And like, that, that is as far as it gets. Yeah, I feel nothing. I don't get... You know, they're, they're, at best, they are boring. And at worst, they're actively dislikable. So yeah. why would I care whether they get saved or not? Um, so also, we haven't mentioned, they're called Romulus and Remus. Yes. But this story has no relation to the myth of Romulus and Remus at any point. That's the only but, link to it. So it's just, again, it's a really lazy, odd decision. That's maybe why they sort of wrote in that their mother had gone out because she's actually a giant wolf. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they tell their dad they're going to go play Equations. Because, as their father says, they have maths powers. Yeah. <laughs> and when they say we're going to go play equations, what that means is they look at coloured squares on a BBC micro. Yeah. But apparently they're so good at this that they could unwittingly rip a hole in the fabric of the universe. <laughs> but, it, it again, it gave me like a little bit of a childish regression. Yeah. They're playing on like a BBC Micro with a touchpad. Yeah. And I, I can remember in my primary school classroom, the first class I was ever in, yeah. had a touchpad attached to the BBC Micro. Wow. And you, you had to like print out 
a sheet that you lay over the touchpad and mm-hmm. it allowed you to like access shortcuts if that makes sense. Ah. I remember there was a a program where you got to design a house and you could touch like bed and it would put a bed on the screen. That's exciting. Mm. But yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it so, uh, it's really hard, isn't it? Like I mean maths is an abstract concept. It's hard to present maths on screen. Mm. Um well countdown can do it. <laughs> <laughs> it does it a lot more entertaining than this. <laughs> Yeah, it's just I I really struggle with that as a basic premise. The idea that they're these somehow they're 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 math geniuses to the level that they can do the things that it is claimed they can do. Um. Anyway. Yeah. So we then cut to the doctor, who is on the TARDIS. Yeah, freshly regenerated. To, he refers to it as a renewal. Yep. Was that just... Does that mean anything? It, We've nah. always heard it referred to as a regeneration. Um, it, 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 renewal is a word that's also been used a few times in, in the, over the course of the thing. Uh, one thing you'll note, if you, if you looked at all of the classic regenerations, is that there is absolutely no consistency in them whatsoever. One of the main, right. thing, one of the main differences with Old Who and New Who is New Who laid down some very basic rules for regeneration and it, it visually it's presented in a similar fashion the doctors talk about it in a fairly similar way from incarnation to incarnation none of that in classic who um but what what i found quite interesting here is we see another room of the TARDIS, not just the main console. Yeah, yeah, you did get a bit more of that in classic. You'd occasionally see, like, uh, companions' bedrooms and things like that. In this case, Mm. we see the wardrobe. Yeah. Which is just like a fancy dress shop. Yeah. Uh, And then he has a weird panic attack and we've seen this before haven't we where regeneration takes it out of the doctor a little bit. yes yeah he's often quite unstable in, in one way or another and as we will go on to learn in this in this story he effectively kind of becomes bipolar yeah. he sort of well, has these these very manic phases and then very depressed phases and well i, I was just making notes as i went and I've just put, he has a panic attack, he is immediately better and just gets dressed. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. And uh, do, we, do, do we talk about the outfit now? We can. It's yeah. shit. No, no, not, not even redeemed by the cat badge? Well, no, because they really hung a hat on that. And I was just like, it's just a cat badge, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, if if at the end he was trapped in a room and he needed a lockpick and he used the cat badge, but it was just like, I'm the doctor, I'm zany, here's yeah. my cat badge. I, I feel like, you know, people some often point to Davison's stick of celery as, like, the worst example of a doctor's costume having a sort of self-consciously wacky addition. I'd say the cat badge is worse. Hmm. But uh, anyway, yeah, it is what it is. I don't hate the coat, to be honest. And I do think it's a good fit for this rather more arrogant, brash uh, version of the Doctor. Hmm. But it is a lot. 
it's a yeah. lot to deal with. <laughs> so, back with the twins. An old man appears called Professor Edgeworth, mm-hmm. who knows their father. Yeah. And he entrances them with jelly rings on their arm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then he leaves with them. See, I half wondered whether they it was like uh, those those little stickers that you get um, for like hole punched documents. <laughs> yeah, to make sure they don't tear. Yeah. Them in a binder. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know I'd like to see a gritty remake of this scene where it's just like a home invasion, two innocent children, yeah. and an old creepy. Man. Well, that's basically what happens, and we haven't even talked about the fact that he just materializes in their yeah. room, and they're like, "Oh," and he just sort of says, "Oh yeah, it's just a magic trick," and they're like, "Yeah, cool." Yeah, and he also <laughs> just goes, "Yeah, I, I know your dad." <laughs> they don't yeah. like go. Like, if that was me, the first thing I'd say is. All right, what's my dad's name then? <laughs> yeah, it's just prove it, and they're just like, "All right, it's astonishing." Anyway, yeah, so they get kidnapped. Yeah, uh, and then this is where we first see the aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're awful. What the the uh, the with their sort of uh, biker leather outfits? Well, they look like they're like wrapped in bin bags, <laughs> and then they've just got fur glued to their face. Yeah. And like, like big pointy noses that are clearly made out of cardboard, painted yeah. with some poster paints. <laughs> yeah, needlessly like long fingers, not long yeah. enough that it comes creepy. Maybe just an inch longer than yeah. normal. I mean, I don't know. At least, at least Doctor Who was trying. I mean, uh, compare it to Star Trek, who didn't, didn't don't even try with their aliens. Yeah. So this is where we find out that the aliens are working for Edgeworth and he works for Mestor. Yeah. Uh, and Romulus and Remus are placed in a bunker. They're going to be taken to Titan 3. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, it's where I've written in my notes, this version of the Doctor's too erratic for me. Yeah. Was that because before he... or after the strangulation? Well, this is where he says, let's go on holiday. And when she agrees, he then chucks her out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, I mean, on, uh, honestly, how did you feel during that scene? Well, the thing is, uh, I appreciate if you'd have seen this for the first time in the eighties, but we've sort of established the law that regeneration does have an impact on the Doctor. I know we've not seen it like this, but yeah, we've seen him like seen knocked out. So here, I just thought, yeah. oh, he's just mentally strained rather than physically. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because let's think. What have we seen? We've seen, yeah, we've seen Tennant spending most of an episode in bed. Yeah. We've seen uh, Matt Smith just tearing through little Amelia Pond's kitchen. Mm. Um, This seems worse, though, doesn't it? (laughs) This is a bit worse. But I I still maintain it's not that bad. Perry deserves it. If I was stuck in a room with her for (laughs) fucking aeons, I'd choke her out. Anyway, Um, yeah. Yeah, probably edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Funny we say that because immediately after yesterday's episode was released, Tim Riley, our number one fan, sent sent me a message just going, "Uh, what was that big argument you and David had? So I'm going to leave that to the imagination. Yeah. I mean, it does, it doesn't want... need raking over. No, if you want a more concise 
answer, Tim. The truth is, uh, go fuck yourself. So, <laughs> so back in Romulus and Remus's house, this is where we their father realizes they're missing, mm-hmm. and he reports it to the commander. Oh yeah, so we see the most ster- world's most stereotypical space police. Yeah, I I wondered whether they were from other episodes, but I'm guessing nah. not. Nah, no. They're, they're a poor man's <laughs> jadoon, aren't they? Very poor, by comparison. Yeah. I guess the thing is they're Earth-based. I feel like it's meant to be Earth, like in the future, where Romulus and Remus are from. I don't think they're meant to be aliens. I could mm. be wrong about that. But, um, yeah. yeah. They ring the space place, and they're going to track the ship. And then, once the Doctor wakes up, after he's choked Perry out, he doesn't remember what happened. And then, I've just written in brackets, Perry's American accent is very poor. Mm-hmm. So, because of his concerns about regeneration, the Doctor says he's going to enter a period of contemplation. He's going to become a hermit. Because he poses too much threat in yeah. his sort of mentally strained state. Mm-hmm. So then I've put in my next notes, because we're back with Romulus and Remus who are trying to escape. And I've just put, are they mentally in sync or not? Because half the time they talk at the same time and then they don't. And then one's doing something and the other one doesn't know what's going on. Like, it's really inconsistent. Yeah. Uh, sort of, you know... It could just be one person, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, why did they go with twins? I guess it's because I th- they wanted to have the dual meaning of the twin dilemma. You know, are they referring to the actual twins, or is it the sort of the the, the competing psyches of the Doctor? You know, hmm. I feel like that was the idea behind that. But um, yeah, there's no reason they need to be twins, is there? None. No, not at all. So, so the commander begins tracking. Like they don't ship. even swap clothes or anything, do they? They don't like and try to pretend, pretend to be each other, or no, no. There's no. no it's not like the parent trap. They never swap places <laughs> or roles or anything. Pointless. But so the commander in the space place are tracking the ship with Romulus and Remus on now, mm-hmm. except it goes into warp drive. So. They send out, like, a crew of fighters to intercept it. Yeah. Uh, The Doctor decides the best place for his period of contemplation is Quiet Asteroid, so he goes to Titan Mm 3, which is convenient. It absolutely is, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's a loud bang once they arrive, and it turns out on Titan 3, Edgeworth has a full moon base. Mm-hmm. So for a quiet asteroid, it's actually pretty busy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the first time we've seen Nestor talk to him. And I've put in brackets, is Nestor an insect man? Because it was really hard to tell at this point. Yeah. So the Doctor finds one of the fighter pilots. The loud bang was basically all the fighters that were chasing Edgeworth's ship being mm-hmm. shot down and crashing to the planet. Yeah. So they meet Lang. Yes, Hugo Lang. What did you make of Hugo Lang? He's rubbish, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Like, again, really inconsistent. He's just needlessly angry. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, fine. Yeah, like, 
because we're, we're we're getting towards the cliffhanger for this episode, aren't we? So we'll yeah yeah. So when they find him, like Perry says, "Oh, there's no survivors," and the Doctor's just like, "Are you stupid? Look, there's a man here. You've left him for dead." Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Part of me thinks he's being needlessly cruel. Part of me thinks she deserves it. Uh, You've really then, got it in for Perry, haven't you? She's just so irritating. <laughs> this is not her Lang, best story. Lang wakes up and thinks that the Doctor was the one that killed everyone. Mm-hmm. So he pulls a gun on the Doctor. Right, yeah. And the Doctor <laughs> ends the episode by sort of just pulling in really odd face like going no yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and like it's and, you know straight to camera as well yeah and the thing yeah. i love about most about that is that he does it again two episodes later <laughs> well, he does it every episode i mean <laughs> when when we get to i think is it the end of it's the end of episode three. Oh no i've made notes at the end of episode two uh, we'll talk about that yeah right so into episode two Lang immediately faints, so there yeah. was no threat at all. Of course. He he pulls a gun and just faints. Yeah. So the Doctor and Perry begin to nurse him better. Mm-hmm. And back with Edgeworth, he's telling Romulus and Remus to do some maths that they just refuse. And it's just like the most half-hearted argument. <laughs> yeah. he, he like goes, oh, do your maths. And they're like, no, you can't make us. If we do it, we might do it wrong on purpose. <laughs> and it goes on for far too long. It does, it does. So it goes on until he starts to control them using the jelly rings. Mm-hmm. And he tells them about Mestor and the planet of Jaconda. And this is where Mestor first speaks to the twins. Yeah. Um, so... We jump back to the Doctor, who've saved Lang, and in a sort of state of weakness, he says the words, the children. Mm-hmm. Now, if I say to you, the children, what do you think of, David? Uh, some children. I don't... I don't it's ah, too... see, that's where you differ from the Doctor, because he <laughs> manages to work out the entire plot of this story. I know, it's ridiculous. Like, that's he even... just goes, the children... You mean the two twins that are with Edgeworth on this planet and there's a big slug man? Effectively, yeah. And, like, look, we've seen stuff like that in, like, Sherlock Holmes stories and stuff, but even with that, he's, like, working out based on dust particles on, on, a, on a broom or something, you know? Yeah. There is something more concrete and specific. It's, you've, give, you've just provided one of the vaguest nouns... In the, you know, in the entirety of the English yeah. language, and we're meant to extrapolate from that. But yeah, anyway, yeah. it's pretty much the equivalent of me solving like the Jack the Ripper mysteries just off the words "the children." Yeah. Um, but anyway, so then they see Edgeworth's base, and Doctor calls Perry Tegan. I'm sure that's important to some people, not to me. <laughs> yeah, he says Braveheart Tegan, which is a thing he always used to say to her. Right. So yeah, if if you if you were invested in the tra- in the fifth Doctor and Tegan, then that was a little ah moment. Yeah, but we're not. We I don't mean, care about that. Well, shit. Well, <laughs> it, it was one. It was one of my favourite moments in the in the episode. But you know, yeah. I suppose you got to be grateful for small mercies. <laughs> so 
it turns out Edgeworth has the greatest power of all because he can turn maths into energy. Ah, oh, fucking everything! Everything <laughs> in relation to the, to maths in this story winds me Imagine up. Imagine doing comic. so much maths you can blow up a sun. <laughs> You know, we need to quarantine Carol Vorderman before she does some real damage. <laughs> oh, man, this story. Right, anyway. I mean, like, I mean, and again, we've this, hung a hat this on how pl- ridiculous that is, but let's just say it again he can turn maths into energy. <laughs> and again, not the worst thing about this story by any means. No, but everyone just sort of goes, oh, no, not maths energy. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. accepts it. Yeah. Right. So the Doctor gets into Edgeworth's space mm-hmm. as the code is being sent to Mestor. So the two boys have basically been tasked with... I can't remember if it's an equation they need to solve or, like, a code they need to decipher, but they just spend ages colouring in little squares, don't they? Yeah. So, some aliens catch the Doctor and Perry. Mm-hmm. And then, again, I'm like, someone needs to explain this to me. I've just written, Edgeworth turns into a picture of a man, then turns back into Edgeworth. Yeah, it's like a sort of, like, picture of his nervous system. Like, was it like a stasis thing? where they I could think just so. Upload his consciousness or something. I think so, but it, he, it doesn't last long, into, does it? He just walks into a cupboard and he disappears <sighs> and there's just a picture of a man. And I then don't... almost immediately they just go, oh, we need Edgeworth. And, he's and back. it just shows you the same footage in reverse. I don't... Is it just... It, they, the, for, is it a plot contrivance? For some reason they need Edgeworth to not be in for a scene. Maybe. Or something. See, I read it the other way, that they'd worked out this visual effect that they just wanted to put in. <laughs> I mean, they shouldn't no have. Need for it. It's not a good effect. No. It's just, yeah, very, one of the, the oddest moments in this story. I, to the point that I'd, I'd actually just kind of wiped it from my brain. <laughs> I just, I just like, that doesn't fit. I, it's like, yeah. it's like a, a, a piece from a different jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? So just, I'm just going to put that to one side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, but I had the other reaction that it stood out as being so odd. I was just like, what was what that is... about? Thankfully, yeah. on Daily Motion, there's like the go back 10 seconds button. Yeah. And I must have pressed that three or four times. <laughs> just like, going, eh? So, yeah, so he does come back almost immediately. Yeah. And he tells the doctor that he's actually Asmael, Master of Jaconda. Yes, yeah, and, and this is where we get the whole reveal that he's a Time Lord, isn't it? You know, the Doctor yeah. does this reminiscing... About the night in the fountain. Yeah, and, I mean, it's very sweet. It just feels entirely misplaced. This is not the story in which to have the Doctor running into an old, friendly Time Lord. Hmm. I don't know. That, yeah, that that was the point. I was going to say, this is the moment where... At the end of this episode, I was like, "Oh no, this is this is this is going to be as bad as its reputation, is it?" Because up until this point, I was like, "Okay, I get why people hate the whole strangling Perry and the, and the mood swings and that whole 
aspect of it. But other than that, this feels like fairly run-of-the-mill, middling Doctor Who to me. It didn't feel like the worst thing I'd ever seen. It didn't seem like the best thing I'd ever seen. It was just like Doctor Who by numbers in a lot of ways. But that, that's what I mean. I don't think it's objectively bad. No, that's where I disagree with because I feel like that the, the reveal of Asmail as a Time Lord and then everything that happens in parts three and four is what solidifies it for me as... I'm not going to go on record as saying the worst, but certainly amongst the worst stories I have ever seen in the history well, of Doctor Who. Ju- just... Let's not get ahead of ourselves, because I've got some pretty detailed notes of episode three. Okie dokie. Let's crack on, shall we? Lang wakes back up in the TARDIS. I don't think I mentioned the Doctor and Perry have gone off and sort of left him there. Yes, which seems, again, why why has the Doctor left a stranger in the TARDIS? That seems like a bad idea. Yeah. And we, we also didn't mention earlier that the Doctor removed the power pack from his gun. Oh, yes, yeah. To remove the threat from Lang. Yeah. Uh, Then I've just put some aliens press some buttons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That that scene just went on and on. And Asmael basically tells the Doctor to piss off and stop meddling in his affairs. Yep, yep. Uh, And then Asmael disappears. I kind of wish the Doctor had taken that advice. Yeah. To be honest... (laughs) That'd have been the best ending ever yeah. if Hasmael just went. No, no you know big what? Loss. This is none of your business. Can you just back out, please? Yeah, one and time all to another. Just let me yeah. handle this one. Yeah. So Lang finds his gun's power pack, and it turns out all the buttons the aliens were pressing was a bomb. Yes. So he's like, yeah, one of them set like the self destruct for the base on Titan Three. Yeah, it took me a while to work that out because. Yeah. When he actually presses the button, there's no illusion that it is a bomb or anything. Nah, it just starts flashing, doesn't it? Yeah. That's the closest so, we got. Edgeworth flies off. Yeah. And the Doctor sends Perry back in time to the TARDIS. Oh, and this again, is another thing that I absolutely hated. Like, this is just time filler, isn't it? Yeah. So, it... he works out to avoid the bomb. He can use the machine that turns Edgeworth into a picture... That's why, that's why, isn't it? That's why they established it, so they could do this whole contrived cliffhanger. Yeah, but it's an entirely different thing. Doesn't matter, because the Doctor. What, one minute it uh, can upload your consciousness, the next thing it's basically a makeshift TARDIS. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, the, like me, yes. that's like me the, giving you a shoe what, and, and saying what? it. Can you cook a lovely four-course meal with this? And you somehow managed to do it. (laughs) And furthermore, the Doctor says he's going to send Perry back ten seconds in time and that will take her onto the TARDIS. They have been there longer than ten seconds. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So what the fuck? But then he he manages to do that. Yeah. And then he says, I'm going to go back to the same point in time. But then he works out that Perry's watch has stopped. So yes, he, he somehow needs Perry's watch so he can synchronise it. He didn't have to do that for Perry, well, but... it's It's been so... Well, my understanding was he wanted to arrive back the same time that Perry did. Yes. And he says, oh no, her watch has stopped. Yeah. You could make a rough guess. It was about 30 seconds yeah. maximum. Between him sending Perry back and himself going but back. But no, apparently that is sufficient peril to end the episode on. 
Well, yeah, because Perry arrives. Yeah. And sees the base explode. Yeah. Before the Doctor arrives. Well, hang on, let's unpack this because Perry arrives in the TARDIS. Uh, Lang pulls a gun on her, and she acts as though he doesn't exist. Hmm. He just wa- she just walks past him. Yeah. Whilst he's pointing a gun at her, doesn't acknowledge his presence at all. To the point that I thought that's where the episode was going and that the the Doctor's calculations had gone slightly wrong and that somehow Perry was slightly out of phase with the mm. rest of... I think you're giving this too much credit. Well, that's the thing. I just assumed that that's where that was going, but we find out, you know, by the start of the next episode, that is definitely not what's happening. It's just a really weird direction choice where... Perry is being threatened with a gun and and acts as though the person doing it is invisible. Mm. Uh, but, but anyway, I've also tagged on the end. I've said that Perry sees the base explode before the Doctor arrives. Yeah, but I've also just added there: we have two more episodes and twelve more series. He's definitely not dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I've just tagged on the end there as well. Perry's accent. Yeah, and also her crying in, in, in that moment. Like, that is some of yeah. the like, like the least convincing cry acting I've ever seen. Yeah. And I don't want to rag on Nicola Bryant too much because she's a good egg, and uh, I think she has done some, like, puts in some good performance in other episodes that I've seen her in, but I, I she can't have been having a good time making this story. <laughs> So then for episode three, I've just written nothing really happens in this episode, so we'll move straight on to episode four. Hooray! <laughs> that's pretty much it. For the other two episodes, I've written two-thirds of a page. I've written about yeah. six lines for this yeah. episode. So what what does happen? Uh, the, the Doctor appears. Yep. And then disappears. So it makes you think, oh, maybe Perry needs to solve yep. this adventure on her own because the Doctor's not quite there. Yep. He just appears immediately. It's, it's just fine, isn't it? It's yeah. what what were they doing with that cliffhanger? Yeah. It feels like it was a hangover from an earlier draft and someone just forgot to delete those scenes out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I... they just had to go with it, despite the fact that it just there is nothing there. There's no tension, there's it makes no sense from a from a logical perspective. It's just nothing. Yeah, it's just crap. But anyway, yes, so they're reunited. They take Lang to Jaconda. He, for someone who was pulling guns on them, he just immediately falls into line. Yeah. Oh, you know what we haven't discussed as well? He's had his costume change, hasn't he? When he finds his gun, he pops into the TARDIS wardrobe and, and just gets like a sort of spangly rainbow blouse. It's like mm. something you'd exp- you'd see on Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. <laughs> ah, unbelievable. There's there's so many little bits wrong with this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I I'll defend. I don't think it does anything majorly wrong, but there are so many little bits wrong with it. Yeah. So Edgeworth is sad that the Doctor could be dead, but the Doctor believes Edgeworth must be facing a disaster to be behaving the way he is. Yep. Fair assumption. So we then see Mestor using his powers of embolisms. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
Mm. Not only that, we also see possibly the worst death acting I've ever seen. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's that's pretty much a staple of classic Doctor Who. So mm. I I didn't it didn't stand out as particularly bad to me, but it's not good for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where we find out that the aliens are gastropods. Yeah. All the way through, I've just called them the aliens because I just had no. I couldn't even find when I googled it the name of their race. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it is just the gastropods. I guess, yeah. Because they're supposed to be a Jacondan myth, and there's all this mythology about a sun god and some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, but long story short, the Doctor needs to go to the palace. Yeah. So the Doctor then gets mad because he's aged. Yes. Uh, you know, mm. it, I can't, again, I can't work out how much of this is intentional. How much is the doctor having a breakdown and how much is just like pointless guff? There, there was, it was a definitely like a strong intention of this story was that the doctor would be erratic and have these mood swings and come across as fairly unlikable. I think the trouble is they didn't balance that with showing him to be heroic or particularly like there 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 isn't enough good doctor to counterbalance mm. uh the 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 less good doctor in this yeah. story yeah so edgeworth has loads of eggs yeah and the doctor is telling mestor's story still talking about the myth and the giant slugs appear and for the first time we see that they leave a trail of like slug slime mm-hmm. and Lang gets stuck in it. Yeah, again, this is just more pointless filler. Yeah. Because he's stuck in it and then he... Just takes his shoes yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. It's just... So, yeah. Mestor meets Romulus and Remus and Edgeworth says, if you stop reading my mind, I can be more productive. And this is where we sort of get the only pointful part of this episode Mm -hmm. so Mesto's plan is to bring two planets close to Jaconda so he can use their resources Jaconda used to be this bountiful planet now it's all barren and horrible yeah the slugs have stripped it bare yeah so that's his big plan Uh, the doctor when Lang gets stuck in the slime leaves Lang and Perry to Mm -hmm. go confront Edgeworth and the slugs catch a perry. Yeah. And the doctor sort of goes, oh no, perry! <laughs> and yeah. looks directly at camera and we get another crap cliffhanger. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, those those cliffhanger faces that Colin Baker does in this story, they delight me. <laughs> I genuinely do, because <laughs> I'm just like, I, I, you know, my heart bleeds for Colin Baker. Can you imagine being like, yes, I get to be Doctor Who, one of the most famous and beloved characters in British television history, and I'm going to make my mark. And he's made up his mind. He's gonna, he's gonna beat Tom Baker's run. He's gonna be, as you know, as established in this role and as beloved as as Tom Baker, a national treasure. And this is the first story he gets. Mm. Can you imagine what he must have felt when that script landed on his mat? Uh, I don't know. 
Like I say, I think there's been worse. This is better than the demons. Oh, fuck off. You're kidding me. (laughs) I, 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 I... Do you want me to end this podcast right now? Look, this this is in keeping with the lore of the universe. That introduced fucking Wiccan magic and shit like that. And no, it was you know. it was fine because it was aliens. Yeah, but I'd watch this ten times before I watch that again. Ah, oh, no. What was the no. last one we watched? Uh, Enlightenment. What was that one about? Uh, ships in space. Eternals. Yeah, this is this is better than that. Fuck off! It is. It is. That had all that, like, oh, I'm the Dark Guardian. At least this one, you know, makes sense. This is not the worst Doctor Who we've watched. It does not make sense. Mestor's plan at the end of this makes not a lick of sense. I I can see it. I can see it. Okay, I, we'll, we'll we'll get there when we get there, right? I, Let's. I, I don't want I don't want people to think, oh, Matt's just being critical. He's just playing devil's advocate. Genuinely, I would watch this over some of the other stuff we've watched. Unbelievable. I would say the only one... I definitely... I would say I quite like The Rescue. I would put this... Yeah, these are probably my two favourites. Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. It's entirely watchable. I was Uh. expecting this to be like The Room. Something so, (laughs) so terrible... That, you know, it might even go full circle and be good. And I would just say, this is just like a bang average Doctor Who. Unbelievable. All right, anyway, look, let's let, let's wrap this up, shall we? Right, so... Uh, episode four. Episode four. So the Doctor gets seized by aliens and taken to Mestor. And he wants to question what Mestor's, you know, plan is. Because surely... Bring in all those planets into line. Something's got to go wrong somewhere. Mm-hmm. So Edgeworth finally gives up and removes the jelly rings to give Romulus and Remus their memories back. Uh-huh. And then I've just written, the Doctor does some shite to do with planets. Yeah. He just gets some toy planets and then also just works out all the plan that's yeah. going to go on. Yeah. And then some aliens enter the TARDIS... Yes. And that appears to be a much bigger plot point than it actually is. Yeah, you feel like they've reached the... the Again, this is nothing that rubs me out the wrong way with this story. Because like, Mestor like, opens it with his mind. Yeah. I guess it proves that he's got you know good mind powers, but... Uh, <sighs> but all it's that the TARDIS. The, end, the TARDIS is, is I mean, sacrosanct. You've got to have a very it's... good reason for... The TARDIS's security being breached like that, I feel like, mm. from a plot perspective. But I don't feel it's any spoiler to say at the end, Lang just gets in the TARDIS with his gun and says, "Get out!" And that's exactly, it. it's not, it's nothing. That is that plot thread. I think it's always played for laughs as well at that moment at the end. But yeah. anyway, so having done his little mystery about the planets, the Doctor works out if they're all in orbit together. The two smaller planets that are going to be introduced to mm-hmm. Jaconda's orbit yep. will crash into the sun and cause a big explosion. Uh-huh. He then works out that something's wrong with all the eggs that mm-hmm. Edgeworth has. Yep. Uh, he says they're far too tough to hatch and he can't even open them up with a laser. Yep. 
So he works out that they to survive the explosion of the sun. And what Mestor actually wants to do is spread his eggs throughout the universe. Yeah. This this is a really bad plan. Should I tell you for why? Go on. In order for Mestor and the current slug creatures to uh, escape the planet's uh, explosion, which presumably they'll want to do before their plan kicks off, they will need some form of interstellar travel. Presumably that interstellar travel will be reliable and mean that they can touch down on another planet somewhere. But they've already got a ship that can travel at warp speed. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, what, is that not the Jacondans? But, yeah, I guess they can use the, the Jacondan tech. Yeah, anyway, because okay. they, have, they have a freighter, don't they? Yeah. And the, initially okay. they're, they're told that it can't travel at warp speed. But then it does. But it does. It's yeah. been modified. Okay, so we know they can do that. Why not take the eggs and actually just seed them on targeted planets rather than scattering them willy-nilly through space, 98% of which is not planets, but just you know what? endless that, void? That wasn't the point I thought you were going to make, but that is a very, very good valid point. <laughs> <laughs> because, as well, the, the lucky few, the like the like 2% of the, the eggs which actually do land on other planets... What percentage of those are going to land on planets with climates that will support the life that hatches from it? Mm. Not many. And how no. will they then track them down? Do they all have trackers inside so they know which ones have actually successfully hatched? Yeah. It's a terrible plan. <laughs> all they need to do is just load up a load of eggs in their warp speed freighter, pick a planet which has... The right kind of atmosphere and plenty of leafy greens for them, and just have at it, and just keep warping their way through the universe, uh, munching their way through planets. Yeah, I mean, you kind of got me there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's usually it's not me that is nitpicking, uh, like plots, especially villain plots in Doctor Who. Usually, I'm just along for the ride. I guess I just. I was not won over by this story, so by the time they revealed this 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 plan, I was just like, "Wait, hang on, yeah. <laughs> what now?" But anyway, <laughs> that's 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 Mestel's great plan. So, so the Doctor <laughs> then orders Romulus and Remus to destroy all their work. Yep, even though it's already been sent to Mestel. And he picks up a bottle of what looks like Caesar dressing. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And when he confronts Mestor, yeah. he throws the bottle at him. Yeah. But Mestor has a force field around him and admits that he is concerned about the weaknesses of his own body mm -hmm. with him being a gastropod. So he tries to take over the Doctor's mind and body. Mm -hmm. And the Doctor gets a bit cocky at this point and says, you know, I've got the mind of a Time Lord. Mm -hmm. You won't be able to do that. So instead, he takes over Asmael's body. Yeah. So whilst he's out of his own body, the Doctor destroys Mestor's body. This is where it gets slightly confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so Hang on, Mestor... I just thought, sorry. Why... Why did Asmael just have 
bottles of anti-mestor potion just lying around. Yeah, and, but I suppose he maybe <laughs> made it, but couldn't use it because Mestor took over his mind. Maybe. That, that's but me being generous. I just I, it, all that all this all that needed was one moment, and it's just, it's a classic thing we've seen in other Doctor Who stories before of the Doctor knocks together a potion. Mm. He's there. He's in a laboratory. He's got access to tech. Just just show him actually being the Doctor for a minute, mm. rather than just grabbing a you know this this uh, slug killer potion that that someone's just blue petered for him. Sorry, anyway. Um. So he destroys Mestor's body. Yeah. And this is where we get the really good death scene where we see like shaving foam pouring out of his eyes and all it's, sorts. It's quite fun and gruesome, isn't it? I do. Yeah. It's a good effect. Yeah, well, um, it's for the budget. of when you put salt on a real slug, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think that's what they I were think. going for. So that also somehow kills Asmael. And yeah. Somehow also hurts the slug aliens, but I think that's because they're coming out of being under Mestal's control. I think we need to clarify, those are Jacondans. Yeah. All the guys with the that they're not slug aliens. They are just the the normal people of Jaconda who were being mind controlled by Mestal. Mm. So when when um, Asmael dies and then there is there is no longer a physical host for Mestor's essence, it just he it's got nowhere to go. So uh, yeah. Well, how come then Lang gets trapped in like slime? Because there are also slug. There are other. Uh, uh, in addition right. to Mestor, there are other slug guys Be- going because around. they're all like black and grey. I maybe confuse yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, it's an understandable mistake to make, to be honest. Um, but, I mean, you look at Mestor's face, he's nothing like the face of the other Jacondans. Yeah, that's true. But then, then we, I, do see, we do see a couple of actual other slug like, creatures. That, that, well, the thought I had was, and I always have this, isn't it weird when you watch Star Wars Episode One? And they're on Naboo with all the Gungans, like Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. That their leader, Boss Nass, is just totally different to all the others. It's so long since I've seen episode one, I can't even picture him. I just thought it was like that. I just thought that maybe Mestor was like some sort of alpha. Yeah, some sort of like queen slug. Yeah. So this is how... The episode wraps up. I've written it in two lines. Okay, Lang go for clears it. the TARDIS of aliens. The Doctor talks to Perry again. Lang takes charge of D- Chaconda. The Doctor takes Romulus and Remus home. The end. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, Asmael gives the Doctor, like, a ring of leadership for mm-hmm. Chaconda, doesn't he? Yeah. And the Doctor says, oh, I'm going to take you home now. But Lang kind of says, well, I think I can be better served here. These... Jacondans need a new leader. What? Why can't the Jacondans elect their own leaders? Yeah. Why? Why do they have to have some, uh, some human or time lord ruling over them? And we're apparently just like, hooray, that's a good thing. Also, especially when we know that the the, the human who's apparently going to take charge of their planet is a trigger happy space cop. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not endeared to him by the end, are we? No, not at all. I feel like 
I could be wrong. I've not fact-checked this. But my gut instinct is there was a there was a plan at some point for Lang to be a companion. Yeah. And, it kind and, of then, just they, and then they just bottled it at the last minute because maybe they didn't get on with the actor who played it or they were just like, actually, maybe having this space cop character isn't going to be a good fit or mm. or whatever. On paper, I don't hate it as a concept for a companion. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But it just seems very odd that he'd just be like, oh, yeah, I've got no ties back home, so I might as well just rule this this barren wasteland. Yeah. But also, imagine how tragic your life must be if you just, like, literally have nothing to go home for. May as well just stay here with these slugs. It's Yeah, it's really bizarre. Yeah. Really bizarre, but yeah, Romy he takes Romy and Rima's home. Great, um, I never cared about them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, despite the fact that they, you know, they are the titular twins of this story, they are so superfluous to yeah. most of it. Yeah, that could have been anything. That could have just been a computer. Exactly. You know, they are just that. a MacGuffin. That's all they yeah. are. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, and Perry still somehow hasn't decided that she wants to leave and go home. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, like I say, I, I don't want to defend it because it's not perfect, but it is not the worst Doctor Who. It's not even the worst Doctor Who I've seen. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree that I think there are some worse stories in uh, New Who. Hmm. Fear Her is the one that immediately springs to mind as a story with almost no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but this isn't good. No. This is not good. And I, and for someone who... I think the thing is, I guess you have yet to really encounter a classic Who story that is anything other than like a museum piece curiosity for you. Mm. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I would I wouldn't say I've ever been, like, entirely invested. Yeah. Um, whereas for me, as someone who does get invested in, in it, it, this feels... At, when, it's, when this episode is firing on all cylinders, it is, at best, harmless, middle-of-the-road Doctor Who. Mm. And at its worst, the way it treats its characters leaves a lot to be desired and makes it quite an awkward watch. So, yeah, it, this was not not the most fun experience for me. But, I mean, <laughs> interesting. I'm glad to finally have it ticked off the list. And I'm actually quite looking forward to, to watching some other Sixth Doctor stuff because I haven't watched. The only Sixth Doctor episodes that I've watched are the Trial of a Time Lord series. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm looking forward to, to seeing more from his era and seeing if there are any other bits that stand out a bit better for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, so uh, thank you to our listeners for, for joining us on this uh, uh, interesting journey. <laughs> yeah. Well done if you've made it this far. Yeah, yeah. Um, fortunately, we're having a little break from Classic Who for now. We will be getting stuck into Series 7. Mm-hmm. Um, next week with Asylum of the Daleks so uh, join us for that why don't you I wonder what that story could be about yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Who knows? Maybe you'll enjoy it, Matt. Maybe. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and cheerio! Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Neither the Time Nor the Space. If you wish to contact us, our email address is timenorspacepod at gmail.com and on Twitter we are at timenorspacepod. And thank you to Alexander Urban for his smashing arrangement of the Doctor Who theme.